You know, one of the best things that I get to do as a pastor is perform weddings, and I've performed a lot of weddings. Weddings normally are cheerful and happy affairs as we come together to celebrate this couple who are committing themselves to one another, committing themselves to a lifetime of mutual love and companionship. But weddings also, if you've been involved in one, also contain a fair amount of tension. And that tension that exists there is due in no small part because of the amount of money that goes into these lavish affairs. When you've got to pay for the dress and for the venue and for the the punch and for the food and the cake and the decorating and the flowers and all that goes into it, there's also some tension that's there. About 16 years ago, I was involved in a wedding for one of my students. I've been involved in a lot of weddings from all the students that I've had in youth ministry. This one in particular, my involvement was not to proceed over the ceremony, but actually I was just going to be reading a passage of Scripture during the ceremony, but my involvement ramped up quickly. Uh, This wedding was on the North Shore on the Tennessee River, beautiful, absolutely beautiful venue, uh, clear view of the river. Uh, The family had hired actually a local TV station to come with their cameras and equipment to film the event so they'd have a high quality record of the wedding. Most of the bridesmaids were students from my ministry. The bride was a student in my ministry. I knew most of the people who were there. In fact, even my youth ministry assistant, he was going to be singing a song that was the procession for the bride. The bridal procession was a song. It was a new song at the time, about 16 years ago, called In Christ Alone. Maybe you've heard of it. And he was going to be singing it with a string quartet from the Chattanooga Symphony Orchestra. Well, it's time for the wedding to begin in just a few minutes, about 10 minutes, and my assistant is nowhere to be found. So the wedding coordinator, who also knew me, said, would you call him? I said, sure. I called him. I said, hey, the wedding's about to begin. Where are you? I'm at Steak and Shake eating a hamburger. (laughs) I I thought it didn't start for two hours. I said, it starts in 10 minutes. And he said, Troy, there's no way I can make it. So I hung up the phone, I went and told the wedding coordinator of this crisis, and she went into a frenzied panic. And I offered a suggestion, now mind you, I didn't evaluate this suggestion before offering. (laughs) I said, I'll sing the song. Now I had heard this song, I'd never sung it, and I certainly had never practiced it with a string quartet. They happened to have an extra piece of sheet music that had the lyrics in it, So I reviewed the music quickly, make sure there were no hiccups or hang-ups, and it's time. The father of the bride and the bride are at the back of the aisle. They're ready to march down. The string quartet starts playing the four-measure introduction, and about a measure before I'm supposed to come in, as I'm listening to this beautiful descant of these four orchestral pieces, I can't hear my note. I can't find my note in my head. Now, I am a pretty good musician, and it's time to begin singing. It's time for me to start. And I go, in Christ alone, I put my trust. Horrible. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I would gather probably not in front of several hundred of your closest friends being filmed by a local television station. As I'm singing all those wrong notes, all I can think about as I look at the bride marching down is I am ruining her wedding. Well, the first violinist heard my struggle, everyone heard my struggle, 
And she started playing the melody very loudly and plainly. And I got right on the note and I sang the rest of the song without a hitch. You know, with all the different moving parts involved in a wedding, there is a high probability something's going to go wrong. Somebody's going to forget something. Somebody's going to uh, make a mistake. There's going to be a flaw. Somebody's going to lock his needs and pass out. You, you never know. And a beautiful and majestic event can turn into catastrophe in a matter of moments. Jesus is thrust into just such a situation in our text today. And he's brought into this situation by, of all people, his mom, Mary. Look in your Bible at John chapter 2, and we will read verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Our theme in chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John has been Jesus is here. He's arrived. He's shown up. His inauguration of his ministry has started. And John outlines for us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. The first four days are at the end of chapter 1. As he outlines those, we return to chapter 2, and chapter 2 begins with the words, on the third day, the third day after the first four days. That makes it day 7. I want you to hold on to that. Day 7 is at a wedding feast, and we'll see how this uh, comes back to bring some meaning here in just a moment. Now, I'm going to break down these 12 verses, this passage, the narrative, in really what I would call three movements or three elements. I want you to look at them on the screen in your outline. Number one, Jesus is invited to the party. Jesus is invited to the party. That's what the text says. Jesus also was invited to the wedding. Now, I think this fact alone, that Jesus was invited to this celebration, to this party, is absolutely fantastic. Sometimes we need to break our stained glass view of Jesus. He was a guy that was invited to parties. He was the type of person that you would want to come to your event. He was the kind of guy that when you see him walk in, you're like, hey, come sit over at our table. We want you here. He was winsome. He was engaging. I think it's awesome that we see this in the text. We're told in the text that the wedding took place in the village of Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana was about nine miles from Nazareth, Jesus and Mary's hometown. I told you last week, Nazareth was a podunk 
backwater town. Well, Cana's even smaller than that. It's a, just a small settlement of a few families, maybe 50 to 100 people at the most. And so they've likely lived there for a long time. And they have relatives who have come from nearby Nazareth to join in on this wedding celebration. It's not surprising then that Mary is there. She's from Nazareth. It's not even surprising that Jesus is there and invited. He's also from nearby Nazareth. Some have suggested, because of Mary's involvement, that this may have actually been a relative of their family. Some have even said, perhaps, this is one of Jesus' younger brothers getting married. Jesus was 30 years old at the time, and certainly his younger half-brothers would have been of marrying age. I don't know about that. But what we do know is that a first-century Jewish wedding was a celebration that lasted between two days and two weeks. And like our weddings in the United States of America, where we focus on the bride, when the bride walks in, everybody stands up, everybody's eyes are on the bride. In a first-century Jewish wedding, it was really different. Everyone was focused on the groom. Everybody was interested in what the groom was doing. And here's why. You see, because the wedding would have been preceded by about a year of betrothal and engagement. And that betrothal period, that engagement period, was really an opportunity for this groom to prove himself. Does he have the capacity to prove to really the bride's father that he can take care of, that he can support his daughter, this family? And the, the wedding feast was kind of like the final exam. The groom and the groom's family was responsible for the wedding feast. And the worst social faux pas you could commit was to not be prepared for the wedding feast. The worst thing he could do for his reputation, a black mark on his character, would be if he ran out of food or ran out of wine at the wedding celebration. So his reputation was on the line in front of his family, in front of his friends, in front of his community at large. Now, just an aside here, I do want to point out, I think it's altogether important to note that Jesus' first miracle was performed at a wedding. What this tells me is that God holds highly the relationship of husband and wife, the relationship of marriage. Friends, it is the highest, it is the holiest of all human relationships. And it's significant that Jesus decided at a wedding to go public with his true identity. His identity had been concealed up to this point to just John the Baptist and those first five disciples, but now his true identity is going to be revealed to those in his community, those who have known him his whole life. Jesus is invited to the party. That's the first movement I want us to see. Number two, Jesus is informed of the problem. Jesus is informed of the problem. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's Jesus' mother, Mary, who informs her, him of this problem. Now, for first century multi-day celebration, again, this would have been a major problem. Now, I don't think we can fully appreciate the catastrophic results of such an occurrence to the groom and to his reputation. This would have been a colossal social embarrassment since he's trying to prove himself worthy of this bride. Now, it's at this point that we can presume Mary's husband, Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, is dead. He, he has died at some time previously, and Mary is a widow. As such, as such, Jesus, as the oldest in the sibling group, would have taken the mantle of responsibility as the man of the house. 
And so he was responsible for making decisions in the home. He was responsible for carrying that mantle of responsibility in the family. Now, some have suggested that Mary came to Jesus because she expected or anticipated him to actually perform a miracle. Now, we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. It could be possible, I suppose. But I think the reason she came to Jesus was much simpler. Basically, for years now, she has depended on Jesus to make decisions for the family. She has come to him with family dilemmas. She has come to him with family crises. And every single time, he always offers the perfect solution. She had living under the same roof with her, the wisest man who ever lived. And she was used to bringing situations and deals to him and him providing a solution. He never had a bad idea in his life. He never offered a wrong solution. He never led them in one step in the wrong direction. So she knew he could provide the perfect answer to this predicament and to this problem. So, of course, when Mary learns of this social faux pas, they've run out of wine, she would instinctively go to the one person she knew who would have the perfect solution. By the way, this conversation recorded here in John chapter 2 between Mary and Jesus, it is the longest conversation between mother and son recorded in the Bible. That's interesting, but it's also important to note that it's from this conversation that the Roman Catholic Church has actually adopted some false doctrine about Jesus. So, for instance, the idea that in order to move the heart of Jesus, you should pray to Mary because Jesus can't deny his mother is taken from this passage. Never mind the fact that Jesus rebukes his mother in this passage. In fact, notice at verse 4, it says this, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, gentlemen, I would not encourage you to use that address for any women in your life. <laughs> Woman, I did that one time with Amy. I didn't see her for two days. Finally, on day three, the swelling in my left eye started to go down. I could see her. <laughs> Actually, this term woman is not intended to be a derogatory term. It is a term of respect. It'd be like if we said ma'am. But it's interesting to note it's it's not intimate. He didn't say mom or mother. He said woman. There's a little distance there. It's courteous and respectful. By the way, this is the same exact word Jesus will say to his mother when he's hanging on the cross. He says, woman, behold your son, and he commends her to John, the gospel writer's care. But what's meant by this phrase that Jesus says? My hour has not yet come. This statement will actually be repeated throughout John's gospel. We'll see it in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, over and over again. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Until we get to chapter 17. Chapter 17 records the high priestly prayer. It is an intimate communion of prayer between Jesus the Son and his heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. And John 17, 1 begins this way. Jesus looked up into heaven and said, Father, my hour has come. What does that mean? The hour was pointing to the cross. The hour is pointing for the very purpose that Jesus came to earth. Jesus came to earth not just to tell stories. Jesus came to earth not just to be an example of what it means to live a righteous life. Jesus came to earth to be the substitutionary sacrifice for the guilt of your sin and my sin. And in John 17, he says, my hour 
has come. And what Jesus is saying to his mother is respectfully, woman, my hour has not yet come. The relationship we enjoy as son and mother is now transitioning. I am now most concerned and only concerned with the relationship with the father. I'm here to do my father's business to provide salvation. So from this point forward, every word, every act, every miracle Jesus says and does is leading up to that one fateful moment, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now, apparently Mary's understanding of his response is that Jesus' was, uh, reply was that he was in fact going to offer a solution because she just bows out from this time forward. She just leaves. In fact, we have recorded in verse 5 the final words of Mary in the Bible. What's the final words that his mother says? Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's some pretty good advice. That's good advice not just for these servants at the wedding. This is good advice for us. Do whatever he tells you to do. Where do we find what Jesus tells us to do? In the Bible, in the Scripture, in the Word. There are many things, particularly even in the New Testament, that we know Jesus has told us to do. He tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our being. He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He tells us when somebody punches you on the cheek, you turn the other to him. He tells you when you are compelled by force by a government official to walk a mile, walk an extra one with him. This is what Jesus tells us to do, among many, many other things. I always find it somewhat curious when I hear someone say, the Lord told me to do this. And subjectively, they identify what they sense or what they feel the Lord is calling them to do. But in the process, they are disobeying the clear commands, the objective commands of Jesus in Scripture. Friend, if you disobey the objective commands in the Bible to obey what you have subjectively sensed Jesus has told you to do, he didn't tell you to do that. This is the reason we read the Bible. This is the reason we study the Bible, to find out what Jesus tells us to do. But mark this, hearing the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word is not the same as doing it. And Jesus pointed out this inconsistency in Luke chapter 6. Notice what he said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The word Lord literally means master, boss. In other words, when Jesus tells us to do something, we say, yes, sir, right away, sir. We do it. The last words of Mary recorded in the Bible are incredibly relevant to us. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus is invited to the party. Jesus is informed of the problem. We'll camp, here, camp out here on this third point the longest. Jesus is identified through this provision of the water to wine. This provision that Jesus miraculously gives and supplies is communicating profound truths about his personal identity, about who he really is. Again, Jesus is here. 
Jesus has shown up. So far in our study, we've seen in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, what's called the prologue, how John has presented to us the very nature of Christ. After that, we see the testimony of John the Baptist, who declares his identity. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus calls the first five disciples. And what do those disciples say after getting to know Jesus a little bit? We found him. We have found him. But of all those testimonies about the identity of Jesus, they're all someone else talking about Jesus. This is Jesus for the first time saying, this is who I am. This is my identity. In fact, in verse 6, we've got some information that serves for us really as a setup to help us understand and to interpret this miracle. John gives a little commentary in verse 6. He says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I've got here a miniature stone water jar. One of our members, Gail Wright, is Gail here? There you are. Gail and Jim traveled to um, the Holy Land, and they actually went to Cana, and this is a miniature replica. I estimate this is about a quart. So these water jars were 20 to 35 gallons, So basically, a hundred times the size of this jar. It's huge, right? And what are they for? They're for the rites of purification. Rite, ritual. This is a Jewish uh, ritual. It's a Jewish ceremony. It's not so much for cleanliness or for sanitary reasons. These washings were for ritual purposes. And so you can imagine this huge water jar sitting there, six of them around this banquet area, and four or five people would be gathered around a jar before they go in to eat, and they would tilt the jar one way, and this guy over here would be washing, and this guy over here would be washing. They'd wash their hands, utensils, plates, cups. Again, it's all ceremony. It's all ritual. And this is the setup. We need to recognize this, that these water jars play a role in understanding and interpreting this miracle recognizing that they are ritual washings, ceremonial religious washings, helps us understand the miracle. In fact, look at verse 11, as John adds some additional commentary. Verse 11 says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. A sign is given to communicate something. A sign is given to help us understand something, to interpret something. So what is this sign of the water turned to wine communicating for us. Two things to point out. First of all, regarding his identity, it points out that Jesus is, in fact, Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over creation. Jesus said, fill these six 25-gallon water pots with water. They fill them up. And he says, okay, you filled them up. And by the way, he never touches them. He doesn't fill them up. He has someone else to fill them up. He doesn't say abracadabra. (laughs) He doesn't wave a magic wand. There's no sleight of hand going on. He, He is disconnected from the action. You get that? He tells them to go fill it up. He tells them then to go and give this next instruction in verse 8. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. This would be the equivalent of the mater d. He's the the master of ceremonies, the head chef, if you will, the master of the feast. Again, remember, uh, Mary told these servants, you all do whatever he tells you to do. And so they're following her instructions, which were to follow his instructions. So he says, go give some to the head 
of the, of the feast. They don't know why they're called to do that, but he tastes the wine, and he calls over the groom. Again, remember, it's the groom's reputation that's on the line here. It's the groom's character that is at stake. He calls the groom over. Hey, come here. I got to say something to you. Oh, everybody's on edge. Oh, no, we just gave this head chef water, stale water out of these jars. What does he say? Look at verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is just the way we do it, right? Amy and I regularly have people come and stay in our home for extended periods of time, normally family. So my sister, my brother, my nephews, my nieces, they'll come and they'll spend the night in our home for days. And, you know, on the first day, we'll also have friends or or missionary partners come and stay with us. On that first day, Amy prepares a full-course meal with dessert and all the fixings, right? Day two, ah, vegetable soup and salad. Day four, we're scraping the refrigerator, trying to find some leftovers we can feed these people that are still here at our house. This is just the way we operate. We put our best foot forward. We have the best first. Jesus saves the best for last. The best for last. And in so doing, by performing this miracle, when did it happen? Somewhere between verse 8 and (laughs) 9, in the white space there. Instantly. The water became wine, and in so doing, in so bending the laws of nature, he creates not just any old wine, but out of stale water, he creates precious, good wine. John says this miracle was performed as a sign. What is it for? He's Lord over creation. Secondly, it points us to this truth. He is Lord over conversion. Jesus is Lord over over conversion. Remember, I told you those six water pots were there for the Jewish ceremonial ritual of washing, of purification. And as such, they represent something for us. They represent the old, stale religious system. They represent stale religion without the life of good wine. Now, there are some pastors and commentators that I respect, some teetotaling pastors and commentators that contend the wine that Jesus created here from the water was of the non-alcoholic variety. They point to the fact that fermentation from grape juice to wine takes around four weeks to properly ferment for the alcoholic content to be there, and there just wasn't the time for Jesus to do that. To which I say, well, how long does it take for rainwater to turn into grape juice? Rain falls from the clouds and the earth absorbs, absorbs it. Those vines suck up the moisture and then distribute the moisture through the vine. Those little grapes begin to expand and grow and develop until they're ripe. Then they're harvested. Then they're crushed. The juice is separated from the skin and then it's poured into bottles. It's not a leap for me to think he did that in an instant. He could also ferment it in an instant. But further, the reason I think this is actually alcoholic wine, um, even though I am too a teetotaling pastor, is because uh, it's referred to as good wine. I assure you, first century Jewish partygoers would not call non-alcoholic wine good wine, just the opposite. This is some bad wine you got us here. But probably the most important reason I think this is alcoholic wine 
is because in the Bible, wine is equated with gladness of heart. Wine is equated with joy. In fact, notice Psalm 104. The psalmist says this, You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is a gift from God to gladden the heart of man, to be used responsibly. Listen, drunkenness is always, without fail, forbidden. But wine is symbolic for joy. So when Mary says they have no wine, she could have just as easily said they have no joy. They're joyless. This is a sign. This is the first sign. And what is this sign telling us about the nature and the identity of Jesus? What is this sign telling us? And what is it depicting as a spiritual reality? It's this. It's telling us of the reality of emptiness apart from Christ. Joylessness. Meaninglessness. Purposelessness. Apart from the life that comes from Jesus. All through the Gospel of John, we will see Jesus confront, head-on, joyless religion, Christless ritual. And so it is not incidental that the water that's transformed into wine was for this Jewish ceremonial ritual of purification. The first century Jews were obsessed with outward observances rather than the heart. In fact, one commentator I read regularly, William Barclay, he said this about this event. He says, The six stone water pots stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. So the Jewish people of the first century, they suffered from a Christless religion. But today, in the 21st century, they're not the only ones who suffer from a Christless religion. There are so-called Christian churches that are Christless, and that's an oxymoron. That's antithetical, but they are. They deny the truth of who Jesus is. They deny that he was born of a virgin, Mary. They deny the fact that he lived a sinless life. These so-called Christian churches deny the fact that he died physically to take the punishment for sin. They deny the fact that he was resurrected really resurrected from the dead. It's a Christless religion. But it's not just liberal churches and liberal denominations. There are conservative evangelicals that for all intents and purpose are Christless religions. There are some churches that have this fixation on pragmatic self-help sermons. You've heard some of them. Five steps to a better you. Four ways to improve relationships. Three keys to have vocational fulfillment. There's no Jesus. Where's Christ? See, all those pragmatic sermons are pointing maybe to felt needs. They may make people feel better and think they're a more well-rounded human being, but they don't deal with the principal issue we all have. We're lost, we're sinners, and we're under the judgment of God righteously. And only when Christ died to take the punishment for our sin can we, one, be alleviated from that judgment, and two, be delivered from the power of sin in our lives. Christ came to redeem us from Christless, meaningless religion. Instead, he gives us the new wine of relationship with the Creator. 
Jesus is Lord over conversion. The water into wine is really picturing the salvation that happens through Christ alone. Water, miraculously, unexplainably, became wine. This lost sinner, miraculously, unexplainably, became a saint unto God. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. It looks like this. God formed us. Sin deformed us. Our school systems try to inform us. The prison system tries to reform us. But only Christ can transform us. And that's what he does. Water into wine. Now, some have wondered... What happened to all that wine? <laughs> I mean, the mater d kind of indicated this, that the party was winding down. It's the end of the celebration. Jesus created the equivalent of about 150 gallons of wine. There's no way they could have drunk all that wine. Well, some have suggested this was a very nice wedding present to the groom. He now became the chief wine distributor in Cana. Could be. But I think it's really communicating something better. Jesus always supplies more than we need. Jesus is the God of abundance. Jesus is the Lord of more than enough. When he comes to give you life, he comes to give you not just a little bit better life. He comes to give you abundant life, fulfilling life, meaningful life. You'll remember whenever he fed the thousands with just a little boy's lunch. Everyone ate their fill. And then the Bible tells us there were 12 baskets full left. David declared in Psalm 23, my cup runs over. I love this doxology from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work with us. Jesus always supplies more than we need. Friends, that's what's so amazing about grace. But here's the final thing I want to point to. Jesus saves the best for last. I mentioned earlier that this is the seventh day of the new creation. Genesis 1 records the first seven days of creation. John 1 and John 2 record the first seven days of the new creation. And the seventh day, the day of completion, is this wedding feast. And it was a part of Jesus' timetable of redemption then to inaugurate his miraculous ministry there, but is also pointing to the conclusion of his timetable of redemption. You see, this is pointing to another marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is pointing to the fact that Jesus said, as we considered last week when we shared communion together, he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. And this is pointing to the fact that he saves the best for last. First, there's the cross. There's coming a crown. First, there's the running the race with endurance. Then comes the ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ. Now there are the burdens of this life. Then will come the blessings. He saves the best for last. 
Do you remember John's thesis statement? We've looked at a few times through this study. It's recorded in John chapter 20. He's telling us the reason why, as the author of this gospel account, why he recorded the, the signs he has recorded. He tells us this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, chapter 2, the first sign John records. Did it have the intended result? What was the intended result? That you might believe, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Well, notice how he puts it again in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Watch this. And his disciples believed in him. These signs are recorded so that you may believe in him. And by believing, you may have life in his name. If you've had the occasion to go up to Point Park on Lookout Mountain, no doubt you've seen this monument that is there and several other monuments and statues that are there to uh, memorialize and commemorate the events that happened there and in Chattanooga during the Civil War between the states. Now, if you're like me, somebody who enjoys history, you'll probably take the time to do what I do, and that is read the signs that accompany each of those monuments and historical markers. Those, so those signs that are there are incredibly important because they tell us the reason for the monument. They explain why this is here, what it's for. Friend, in the same way, the signs of Jesus show us and tell us what he's there for. The signs that are recorded in the Gospel of John that we will study over the next two years, they tell us that he is more than just a man. He's more than just a car carpenter. He is God in human flesh. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And I would ask you as we close, do you know him? Have you come to believe in him? Have you had your life transformed by his miraculous power from water to wine? And that leads to my last thought. The same Savior who changed water into wine can change a sinner into a saint.